you here at Villanova, and it's my pleasure to welcome you here this afternoon. I have to put in a shameless plug for an event we're sponsoring next week. Uh, there is a conference that will be next Thursday, April 12th, uh, called Truth and Mystery, and it features Jean-Luc Marion, William Desmond, and Amy Hollywood. Uh, portions of that event are open to the public, and you can check out our website um, and uh, Villanova's calendar to find out more information, because you're most welcome to attend. Today we're fortunate to have Peter Crate with us. He is a professor of philosophy at Boston College. Uh, he also actually taught here at Villanova full-time, and what he tells me was the Jurassic Age, but I think it was a little more recent than that. Uh, Professor Craig is the author of more than 67 books. He's incredibly prolific. Uh, his volumes include Christianity for Modern Pagans, Handbook of Christian Apologetics, Fundamentals of the Faith, Between Allah and Jesus, What Christians Can Learn from Muslims, and a relatively new novel called An Ocean Full of Angels. Um, He's been honored with um, various uh, awards and forms of recognition, including the Woodrow Wilson Fellowship and the Yale Sterling Fellowship. He speaks extensively around the country. If you go to his website, you'll see a running calendar of events that has him booked nearly every weekend and sometimes um, during the week as well. Uh, heading this way and that to speak on a wide range of subject matters, uh, both formal academic lectures and parish-oriented talks and stuff. <coughs> Um, all in wide recognition, I think, of the many years of scholarship um, uh, and service to the, both the academy and the church that he has offered. His talk for us today is called Faith, Doubt, and Reason. So I hope you will join me in welcoming Professor Peter Crane. Thank you. Thank you all for coming out, especially to hear uh, me talk about a subject that sounds very abstract. Let's start with doubt. Is it good or bad? I like simple questions and simple answers, so here's a simple question. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? Well, before we answer that question, let's ask another question. How do we find out? Well, if we're Christians, we'll start with our ultimate standard, Christ. What does he think? What you think about Christ is much less important than what Christ thinks about you, and therefore what your doubt, faith, or reason thinks about Christ is also less important than what Christ thinks about your faith, doubt, or reason. So let's ask him. Well, on the one hand, he always encouraged questions. He never once said to his disciples, don't ask stupid questions. Uh, he was a rabbi, and next to Socrates, the rabbis are the most famous for asking questions. Classic Jewish joke, why does a rabbi always answer a question with another question? Answer, why shouldn't a rabbi answer a question with another question? <laughs> on the other hand, he did discourage doubts on numerous occasions. He says to his disciples, why did you doubt? when Peter started walking on the water and then sank, when Thomas said he wouldn't believe unless he touched his wounds. He's certainly big on faith, and doubt is in some sense the opposite of faith. So we've got apparently contradictory data here. 
But whenever you have apparently contradictory data, which you often do in theology, free will and predestination, good stuff and bad stuff, uh, you do the same thing as you do in science. You find a hypothesis that includes all the data. To do that, you probably need distinctions. So let's start with two kinds of faith and two kinds of doubt. One definition of faith is an act of the intellect that embraces an idea without proof. <clears throat> the object of faith then is an idea, a proposition. Another kind of faith is personal trust in a person. Thomas Aquinas says, uh, Faith has two objects, a proximate object and an ultimate object. The proximate object is the creeds, and the ultimate object is God. That's like saying, I, I trust this road because I trust the roadmap. Parallel to that, there would be two kinds of doubt. Distrust in an idea or distrust in a person. That distinction, I think, is essential for answering uh, an argument from the Oxford logician Clifford, which he... Uh, implied in his famous rule, Clifford's rule, which is essentially that it is always immoral, it is always ethically unjustifiable to accept any idea or to believe any idea without sufficient evidence. Uh, that's very true in science, and it's very wrong in religion, and it's always also very wrong in life. Suppose a policeman came into this room right now and said, Professor Crafe, we have to interrupt your lecture. We're sorry, we're taking you down to the uh, police office uh, because uh, uh, we have evidence that uh, your wife just chopped the heads off of 13 of your neighbors back in Boston. Uh, and we have photographic evidence, uh, so we want your sworn testimony. I would say, no, you, that, that is impossible. Couldn't happen. They said, but, but, but we've got evidence. I say, yeah, but I've got more evidence than you have. You don't know her, I do. She would never do that. Impossible. Well, that evidence doesn't register on the, on the police blotter. In one of the famous trial scenes in world literature, Dmitry Karamazov, in Dostoevsky's great novel, The Brothers Karamazov, uh, who is innocent, is uh, tried and found guilty for the murder of his father. And nobody makes a mistake. The uh, evidence gatherers are perfectly objective, and the, the judge is perfectly objective, and there's no injustice or uh, irrationality at all in the trial. And yet it's a mistrial, because although they understand the evidence, they don't understand him. They don't understand his sense of honor. So there's two different kinds of evidence here. Uh, there's the evidence about who you are, and there's the evidence about what, in fact, is, in an impersonal and abstract sense, true. C.S. Lewis wrote an essay entitled On Obstinacy in Belief, which uh, answered the charge that very many atheists lay on the backs of Christians, namely, that we are intellectually uh, cowardly and weak thinkers because we don't demand uh, absolute evidence for things. We, we, we don't believe in Clifford's rule. Uh, for instance, even after we pray for something good and God doesn't give it to us, we don't say, therefore, God is not trustable. And even after horrors like the Holocaust, we can still believe that God is good. Well, that seems like simply intellectual obstinacy. And he argues that uh, that would be true 
if religious belief were a scientific hypothesis, but it isn't. Uh, we must move from the logic of the relationship between ideas into the logic of relationships among persons. And those two are not the same thing. We have to throw a third term into our hopper here uh, and relate them. The term is reason. Uh, doubt has a certain relationship to reason. On the one hand, it, uh, uh, it holds back from saying that there is enough rational evidence so that I can rationally say that this is rationally certain. On the other hand, doubt spurs on reason. Doubt is, in, in one sense, a, uh, an opponent to reason, and in the other sense, it's a friend to reason. It's sort of the ants in the pants that keep your mind moving. And it does the same thing to faith. In one sense, it weakens faith. In another sense, it strengthens faith. This is getting more and more confusing. So if I had a blackboard here, I would make a chart. And I would distinguish four different areas where faith, doubt, and reason work. One area is science, one is philosophy, one is religion, and one is life, or common sense. And if I had that chart here, and you can have it in your mind here, uh, we could go through each of these three mental attitudes, doubt, faith, and reason, and ask what is the appropriate form of it in each of these areas. And we would see that the appropriate form is not the same at all in these four different areas. Uh, doubt, very good for science, necessary beginning for science. First step of the scientific method is not to gather evidence or to form a hypothesis or even to gather data. The first step of the scientific method is not even to ask a question. First step of the scientific method is to erase all prejudices from your mind. Assume nothing. Science is like politics. If you assume nothing, you'll probably succeed. If you begin with doubt, you might end with certainty. But if you begin with certainty, you'll end in doubt. Uh, in religion, however, uh, the role of doubt is quite different. Doubt towards God, as the opposite of personal faith in God, is deadly. It cuts the umbilical cord, and you don't get born, you get dead. Uh, and even doubting certain ideas, certain ideas, is a bad thing, whereas doubting all other ideas is a good thing. If there are certain ideas that come from God's mind, if there is such a thing as divine revelation, then it is perfectly proper and perfectly reasonable to say, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Unless God is not God. God preached what is, to my mind, the shortest sermon ever preached when he revealed to St. Catherine uh, in a mystical experience uh, that she needed to learn only two things. And each of these two things could be expressed in two words. So all of divine revelation could be summarized in four words. Thing number one. I'm God. Thing number two, you're not. We keep forgetting that second thing. Uh, so to doubt God's ideas, if we have access to God's ideas, is a bad thing. To doubt human ideas is a good and necessary thing. Big distinction. Go to philosophy. Uh, is doubt a good thing? Well, obviously. But 
is it where you begin? Must philosophy begin where science begins? Descartes thinks so. The Discourse on Method, one of the most influential philosophy texts ever written, it really starts the whole new uh, thing called modern philosophy by a, a new method, uh, assumes that philosophy should work by the scientific method. Descartes noticed that all the sciences in his day were progressing remarkably, uh, and he isolated the common factor that caused their immense progress, namely scientific method. So he said, let's apply it to philosophy. It's a, a noble and necessary experiment. Of course, it didn't work. Uh, I've never in my life met a living philosopher who called himself an orthodox Cartesian. Everyone admits Descartes is great, but nobody is his, is his, his disciple. Uh, I myself think that Socrates is a better guide than uh, Descartes. Both are masters at questions, but Socrates begins with faith and then doubts everything. Uh, interlocutor, what is your opinion? Uh, now let's examine it. Uh, Descartes tries to begin with nothing, with doubt, and proceed to something. I don't think that works. But with that proviso, doubt's very important in philosophy. And in life, uh, if we asked more questions and had more doubts, we would probably be richer. We would certainly be more content. Our economy would probably go down the drain. But uh, we, would, we would ask, do we really need this? But life also contains persons as well as ideas. And to doubt persons, to start with universal doubt, to say in conversation when a friend innocently says, you know, the wind is blowing very hard today. To reply, prove it. I won't believe it unless you proved it. Or when somebody says, I, I just met such and such a, a person. Uh, I would say, I, I won't believe it unless you show them to me. That would not only be a conversation stopper, that would be a life stopper. Notice that religion is more like common sense or like life than it is like either philosophy or like science with regard to doubt. Let's ask about faith in these four areas. Uh, there's not much room for faith in science. Maybe a provisional faith in your teacher or some great scientist uh, so that you direct your attention to a respectable theory rather than a disreputable one. But uh, the only place I think you need a strong faith in science is a faith in science itself. That is, faith in the enterprise, faith in the possibility of it, faith in reason. Uh, I don't think that there is in science, or for that matter in philosophy, the possibility of proving by a scientific or a philosophical method uh, that reason is valid. How could, you, how could you do what Descartes tried to do and tried to prove the validity of reason itself by reason. I mean, reason concretely means these thousands of acts of reasoning that all of us do all the time about all sorts of things. All right, each of these is on trial now. Imagine everybody in this room is an act of reasoning and you're all on trial. Are you guilty or innocent? Can we trust you or can we not trust you? Uh, it's by an act of reasoning that I have to answer that question. So one of these prisoners who's on trial has to jump up into the judge's bench and say, I declare all of us innocent. What right does he have to do that? If all reason is on trial, then the act of reason by which you validate reasoning is also on trial. That's simply self-contradictory. So I don't think the Cartesian program can work. That's sometimes called foundationalism 
although that's a, a, an ambiguous and, and dangerous term. So there is, I think, room for something like faith in the area of science, that is, faith in the power of human reason to know truth. I see no scientific proof of that. For that matter, I see no philosophical proof of that. Pascal argues, contrary to Descartes, that uh, uh, his doubt wasn't as deep as he thought it was. That the ultimate level of doubt, namely, is the devil perhaps hypnotizing me? Are all my thoughts perhaps the direct effect of a, uh, an almost omniscient uh, and omnipotent deceiver? Uh, that, that was never really answered because my mind is either programmed rather like a computer. Pascal invented the world's first working computer, by the way. Uh, it's either programmed by no mind at all, by blind chance, or it's programmed by a mind that's either wicked or foolish or both, or it's programmed by a mind that's neither wicked nor foolish. So it's either chance, Satan, or God that programmed the hardware in my computer. And if it's either Satan or chance, there's no reason for me to trust the computer. Uh, came here by plane. If I had heard on the public address system the following announcement, uh, namely, both of the pilots are dead, but not to worry because uh, uh, the plane is on autopilot and this autopilot was uh, programmed by a computer and this computer, in turn, was programmed by uh, uh, a football player uh, stamping on computer cards with spiked shoes last night or by someone throwing a bunch of marbles at the keyboard. Uh, would I settle back into my seat uh, comfortably assured that the plane would land? No, I'd start praying. So I don't really see how natural selection justifies the, the brilliance of our inherent programming. Uh, and of course, if the devil programmed you, you can't trust him. So you need something like God uh, to validate reason. But on the other hand, you need something like reason to validate God. So we're in the Cartesian circle. In religion, obviously, faith is not only a good thing, but it's necessary for salvation. It's the first of the three-part umbilical cord that plugs you into God. It's also necessary for wisdom. Unless you believe, you will not understand. It's also true that unless you understand, you will not believe. But we'll get to that later when we get to reason. Finally, in life or in common sense, faith is absolutely necessary for persons. And it is necessary for ideas, because most of the things that we learn, we learn through faith, faith in human authority. Uh, your textbooks, your teachers, your parents, your friends. Uh, you don't start with doubt, you start with faith. And then you check it out by reason. So once again, religion resembles life more than it resembles either science or philosophy. Notice I'm not talking about theology, I'm just talking about religion. Theology can be seen either as a subdivision of philosophy, philosophical theology, or as a subdivision of religion, revealed theology. Finally, reason. Uh, in all four areas of human life, you need reason. Uh, there's a significant difference as to the form it takes in the four areas, but it's the only one of these three attitudes which has an unqualified affirmative in all four areas. And yet, I wonder if it can begin any one of those four areas. 
life begins with experience. Uh, science begins with, with questioning. Uh, religion begins with faith. Uh, what does philosophy begin with? All of the above. Well, we need to go further into reason. We talked about doubt and faith, but we didn't talk that much about reason. And especially when we are going to think about the relation among these three things, reason is probably going to be the, the mediator between faith and doubt, or the judge of the role of faith and the role of doubt. So it's essential to define reason. Let's start historically. The very word reason has a history. It doesn't mean the same thing in all eras, like, like a number. In fact, you can learn much about the history of consciousness uh, by looking at the different uses of the word reason. In ancient times, in pre-Socratic times, reason was not yet isolated and distinguished as a differentiated psychic function. Reason meant simply everything that distinguishes man from the beast, including intuition and mystical experience and, and, and wisdom, and it was incarnated in, in ritual and in institutions and in everything that distinguished man from the beast. Enter Socrates. The fact that there was no Socrates in the Orient uh, was a shattering event and came to subsequently distinguish the two halves of the world. Uh, the Orient is certainly not intellectually inferior to the Occident, but because it had no Socrates, it didn't make that distinction between the rational and the non-rational. What reason meant to Socrates was essentially logic that is, proof, that is, having reasons for your wisdom. Uh, that involved a withdrawal, uh, an abstraction, a, a distinguishing of oneself from the object, a, a critical looking at the object, instead of a, uh, an inherent participation in the object. Something like the distinction Gabriel Marcel makes between problems and mysteries. Uh, Socrates is the first person who took lived mysteries and turned them into thought problems. And that was an immense advance, but it also had an immense price. <coughs> Philosophy emerges from that. The sciences, until fairly recently, were children who lived in the home of philosophy. And only when they got old enough did they leave home and set up housekeeping on their own. And that happened only sometime between the Renaissance and Newton, even as late as Newton. Uh, his great physical work is called Principles of Natural Philosophy. But Descartes is the first one who narrowed reason and clearly distinguished uh, reason in the sense that we usually use it today from reason in an ancient, broader, more Socratic sense. Uh, the distinction between Descartes' meaning of reason and Socrates' meaning of reason can be best seen by the standard of Plato's divided line in the Republic. You remember there are four levels of reason there, corresponding to the four levels of being. It's a summary of Plato's epistemology as well as his metaphysics. 
And the first level is images, pictures, representations, copies of concrete, real things. The second level is the direct experience of those concretely real individual things. The third level is mathematical and logical reasoning, if-then reasoning. And the fourth level is the intuition into a platonic form, uh, an absolute, like justice. Uh, and education goes from level one through level four. And many Platonic dialogues, the Republic itself, for instance, uh, can be outlined by the, the process of the mind through those four levels. Now, one way of seeing the difference between Descartes' meaning of reason and Socrates is to look at the Discourse on Method, the very first paragraph, when he says, reason is by nature equal in all men. And we all have as much of it as we need. And we all have the same thing, essentially. Well, that can apply only to two of the four levels. It certainly does not apply to level four. We don't have equal wisdom. And I don't think it applies to level one. We don't have equal opinions. But if we evaluate our opinions by the twofold scientific method of empirical data and quantitative mathematical and logical reasoning, uh, then we become scientists. So in a sense, the essence of science is to lop off level one and level four of the divided line and combine level two and three. Descartes, of course, emphasized level three, whereas the more Baconian tradition uh, in science emphasizes the empirical level two, but it's the combination of the two that produces science. And that's a narrowing of reason such that we all have the same amount of it. Obviously, I can do logic a little faster than my students, but it's not a different logic. And someone who has more data, more sense experience, knows more facts than someone who has less, but the one who knows less can always check up on those facts and catch up to the one who has more. So Descartes is right. That is a kind of reason that is equal. Enter David Hume. And you have a fourth notion of reason, uh, which is such a narrowing that he seems to have Plato in mind there in saying that uh, he's going to reverse Plato's cave. He's going to send you into the cave instead of out of it. He's going to undo Hamlet's famous saying to Horatio when Horatio doesn't believe in ghosts and yet he sees Hamlet's father's ghost and he doesn't know what to think. And Hamlet says to him, Horatio, there are more things in heaven and earth that are dreamed of in your philosophy. Well, that's Shakespeare's philosophy and that's Plato's philosophy and that's the point of the cave. Hume said, no, that's exactly wrong. There are far fewer things in heaven and earth that are dreamed of in your philosophy. We know far less than we think we know. Not because our knowledge is uh, not as big as reality, but because it's too big. Hume is certainly the most influential skeptic in the history of human thought. He had to be answered, enter Kant. But the only way Kant could see to answer Hume was by another redefinition of reason itself, a fifth meaning of reason, the Copernican Revolution, according to which reason constructs everything knowable rather than discovers it. Thus, there is no knowledge of things in themselves at all possible in principle ever by the human mind, which to my mind is a more serious skepticism than even Hume, because Hume is at least a probabilist. So we get reason narrower and narrower 
until we get in reaction to all of this Enlightenment rationalism, uh, especially in the 19th century, uh, a kind of existentialism or romanticism, which is something like a return to the ancient, holistic, more intuitive notion of reason, but with a modern dress. And just because seven is the magical number, I have to add a seventh one. So I'll say that deconstructionism is the seventh and most apocalyptic. Uh, I can't even finish the sentence because my mother, uh, who is present uh, whenever I speak, uh, is frowning now. I can feel her frowning. She used to say to me, if you can't say something nice about somebody, don't say anything at all. So I won't say anything more about deconstructionism. <laughs> except to say, in its own words, that all reasoning is rationalizing, and it's all a power struggle, and there's nothing more than that. Well, which of these seven meanings of reason am I going to talk about in my talk? Socrates. That is my choice. I am the talker. You are the listener. You have to follow me. Uh, I've got the power here. So get somebody else to talk about the other six notions of reason. But when I talk about the relation between reason and doubt and reason and faith, that is what I will use. To summarize probably the single most important distinction that I've been trying to make in perhaps too rambling and confused a way, uh, let's say that all three of these things, reason, faith, and doubt, have at least two different levels a deeper, more holistic, and existential level of meaning, and a surface meaning, especially today. First of all, faith. It's, in the surface meaning, it's an opinion, faith in an idea. In the deeper meaning, it's a relationship with a person, a kind of fidelity, a kind of commitment. Doubt. Doubt in the surface meaning is suspension of judgment, not affirming an idea, a kind of agnosticism. Doubt in a deeper, more holistic and existential sense is uh, doubt of a person, doubt of a relationship with a person, whether God or yourself or somebody else. And thus it is an existential crisis, not just a crisis of thought. And finally, reason. Reason on the surface is simply empirical facts plus logical consistency. In a deeper sense, it's wisdom, an understanding of the things that are most important to understand. The typically modern mind is suspicious of that. It thinks that the only things teachable are the things that aren't really worth teaching. And the things that are the most worth teaching are the hardest to teach. In other words, you can't be profound and clear at the same time. Has there ever been a philosopher since Thomas Aquinas who was both very profound and very clear at the same time? The English Channel seems to make that impossible even though they're, they're, there's the channel now and uh, there's a lot of philosophical bridges over the channel and analytic philosophers and continental philosophers are talking to each other, still continental philosophers sound like muttering locomotives and uh, English-speaking philosophers sound like chirping birds. So they're, they're, still, they're still not being both clear and profound at the same time. All right, we now come to the question of the relation between faith and reason. Uh, especially religious faith and Socratic reason. The prime analogate here, the, the touchstone, is of course Aquinas. Uh, 
let me try to summarize Aquinas' position before I, I relate it to other positions and other alternatives. Uh, when Aquinas talks about faith and reason, he's talking about intellectual faith, uh, faith in propositions, not the act of faith, not the personal relationship of faith. Uh, imagine all the truths known by reason, by human reason, unaided by faith in God, faith in divine revelation, in one class, and imagine in another class all the propositions that are known by faith, that is, religious faith, uh, in the Western sense. Divine revelation for a, a Jew, a Christian, or a Muslim is a public thing. It comes in propositions. Divine revelation in the Orient for a, a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Taoist does not come in propositions. It comes only in, in some sort of mystical experience. So we're talking about two classes of propositions here. Truths known by faith and truths known by reason. How are they related? Well, there are five possible answers to that question. Whenever you have any two things or classes of things, there are five possible relations between, let's say, A and B. Either A is a part of B, or B is a part of A, or A and B are identical, or A and B are simply separate, or else A and B overlap. So those are five possible epistemologies of faith and reason, so to speak. Uh, one of them would be that faith is totally surrounded by reason, has no independence from reason. If reason validates it, fine. If not, not. That's Enlightenment rationalism. That's Clifford's rule. A second position would be an even more extreme rationalism, uh, which I would identify with both Spinoza and Hegel. They would identify reason and faith, or say that uh, the real is the rational and the rational is the real, and therefore there's no room for faith at all unless it's identical with reason. Uh, a third possibility would be the separation between the two things. I would call that a kind of, of typically reformation uh, separation of, well, the natural and the supernatural. Uh, things of faith are affirmed, things of reason are affirmed, but uh, uh, there's a skepticism of the interlocking of them. And the interlocking of them, the fourth possibility, would be the Thomistic and Augustinian position that there are three categories. The categories of propositions that can be known by reason alone, most of the propositions of natural science and common sense, those things that can be known by faith alone, like the Trinity and the Incarnation, and those things that can be known by either faith or reason, or both faith and reason, such as that God exists, that he's one, that he's good, uh, natural moral law, and so on. Then finally, uh, a fifth and opposite extreme from Enlightenment rationalism would be the fideism that says reason has no independence of faith, that reason is totally surrounded by faith. This could be simply a, a naivete or uh, an ignorance of reason, or it could be a kind of pragmatism, so that the faith would be a secular faith, or it could be perhaps a Pascalian critique of 
Cartesian foundationalism, which says that since reason cannot justify itself, faith has to justify it. But that too would not necessarily be a religious faith. You could ground your faith in reason on a religious faith, or you could ground it on a, a, a human faith or a human need. Uh, I don't know, by the way, myself, the answer to that question. I've been puzzling over the Descartes versus Pascal argument about the, the justification of reason. And although I don't see how Descartes can hold up, uh, I'm a little troubled by Pascal's uh, fideism. But let's turn to Pascal, see what he says about doubt, faith, and reason. It's a, a very famous pensée, number 170. First I'll quote it, and then I'll comment on it. He says, one must know when it is right to doubt, to affirm, to submit. Anyone who does otherwise does not understand the force of reason. <coughs> Some men run counter to these three principles, either affirming that everything can be proved because they know nothing about proof, or doubting everything because they do not know when to submit, or always submitting because they do not know when judgment is called for. See what he's doing here. He's taking these three attitudes, doubting, what he calls affirming, by which I think he means affirming that I have rational certainty, certainty by reason, and then finally submitting, which I think means for him faith, faith in authority. Uh, since he's a traditional Catholic, he doesn't believe that faith is a, a psychological attitude that you create in yourself by pushing the faith button, but faith is simply a response to divine revelation. So you have these three attitudes, doubting, affirming, and submitting. Uh, so you could make two errors about affirming or the role of reason. It could be too great or it could be too little. Too great would be rationalism, too little would be irrationalism, which would be either skepticism, a la Hume, or fideism, a la Luther, or maybe Pascal. So he says, some men run counter to these three principles, either affirming that everything can be proved, this is rationalism, because they know nothing about proof, that's a very severe critique of Descartes, or doubting everything because they do not know when to submit, or always submitting because they don't know when judgment is called for. So imagine doubt, faith, and reason in a kind of a, a, a circle with arrows going round, let's say clockwise, and doubt is at 12 o'clock, and faith is at 4 o'clock, and reason is at 8 o'clock. Uh, if you start with doubt, uh, the only way out is faith. If you start with faith, you absolutely need reason. If you start with reason, you absolutely need doubt. Uh, if everything is doubt, you're a skeptic. There's no room for either reason or faith. How do you get out of that? Well, you get out of that by faith and then, then by reason. If everything is faith, you're naive, you're a fideist, there's no room for either reason or doubt. How do you get out of that? By reason, by expanding your mind. Uh, if all is reason, you're a rationalist and there's no need for either room for either doubt or faith, how do you get out of that? Of that? Uh, by doubt. 
so skepticism needs faith, fideism needs reason, rationalism needs doubt. You need all three. It's like the Willie Nelson song. You gotta know when to fold. What are the three? I'm not a card shark, but it's like the Willie Nelson song. So you need all three. Now, have I either defined the question very simply and very clearly so that even though you don't have an answer, uh, you can very easily find one for yourself? Or have I given you uh, a definite answer uh, and proved it conclusively to you? Or have I simply begun a little more confusion in your mind uh, so that the, uh, the gray matter is moving and I've set up uh, a kind of a, uh, a diving board uh, to plunge into the pool of discussion? Uh, it's the third thing that I tried to do. So if you think that I've done either the first thing or the second thing, I failed. But if you feel a bit confused, but slightly interested at this point, then I've succeeded. Now, I like, I like to keep my talks fairly short so that we can keep the question and answer sessions fairly long. And I often speak to Catholic audiences, and Catholics believe in purgatory, so they, they're used to the purgatory of a long monologue, which is always dull, because they hope to get to the dialogue, which is a kind of a foretaste of heaven. So I announce to you that your purgatory is over. You are in heaven now. Questions, please. <laughs> Uh, Aristotle was once lecturing in his university, according to Diogenes Laertius's gossipy Lives of the Great Philosophers, uh, and there were no questions after his lecture, and he was very disappointed. So he said to the students, if you were listening, my lecture was on levels of intelligence in the universe, and in my philosophy there are three. Uh, the intelligence of the gods, the intelligence of us humans, us mortals, and the intelligence of the beasts. Uh, and I said that we could distinguish human intelligence from both divine and animal intelligence by the very same thing. Humans alone ask questions. The gods know too much to ask questions, and the beasts know too little. So, if you have no questions, shall I congratulate you on having risen to the level of the gods, or shall I insult you upon having sunk to the level of the beasts? After that, there were questions. Any human beings among you? Yes. Yes. The questions and find our own answers. So where, where do we draw the line between doubting and questioning? There's three kinds of asking questions. If you start with some sort of religious faith, that means you're starting with some sort of relationship to God. You believe in God. You, you, you talk to him now and then. Okay. Uh, within that context, questioning can be either uh, a kind of talking to God, like Job's questioning. Hey, God, why did you allow this? What's going on here anyway? Sometimes it's calm, sometimes it's, it's hysterical, as it was in Job. God likes that, likes that very much. At the end of the book of Job, uh, when God finally shows up, he says to the three friends, I'm mad at you for not having talked rightly about me, as my servant Job has. And yet, Job asks all sorts of blasphemous questions. 
And the three friends didn't. They were polite. They just said, basically, God is great and God is good. Let us thank him for our food. Amen. With a few more poetic images. Uh, but Job shook his fist in God's face and said, you bloody butcher, how can you get away with this anyway? And God liked that because it was in the context of prayer. Job prayed. The three friends only theologized. So that's, that's religious doubt. That's doubt within the relationship. At the opposite extreme, it could be doubt against the relationship. Nietzsche's kind of doubt. Uh, if there were a God, how could I bear not to be a God? Consequently, there are no gods. That's a, a, a lived doubt, a lived anti-faith. Thirdly, it can be simply neutral, simply exploring ideas uh, as possibly true and possibly false. And that attitude, I think, is religiously neutral, depending on whether it's taken up into the, the positive faith relationship or the negative anti-faith relationship. So there's a kind of doubting that God likes. Uh, when, when two people marry each other, they should expect to fight. The family that fights together stays together. If you keep it all in, you don't fight. It's a, it's, it's a kind of a polite divorce already happening. Throw dishes at each other. When my wife and I got married, she's Italian and I'm Dutch, so we're opposites. Uh, we, thought, we thought that the movie, uh, Divorce Italian Style, was a hilariously funny movie. It was a movie about a, uh, an Italian guy who wanted to divorce his wife, but he couldn't because divorce was illegal in Italy. So divorce Italian style is murder. So he hired a mafia hitman to murder his wife, and he murdered everybody else, but not her. She survived. And we thought it was funny because we were Catholics, and we don't believe in divorce. Uh, Protestants do. Protestants say that they can change uh, the clear teaching of Jesus in all four Gospels that there is no divorce. But the Catholic Church doesn't claim that kind of authority. So, uh, so there is no such thing as divorce. So we said, we're going to fight a lot, but we're never going to divorce because divorce doesn't exist. We might murder each other, but we'll never divorce. So if we don't murder each other, we'll stay together. <laughs> we thought that was great. We just don't keep any lethal weapons in the house. <laughs> now, that I think is a model for the relationship with God. God is not comfortable. God is not nice. God is not a, a grandfather, he's a father. He makes trouble. You're going to have a stormy relationship with him. That's good. That's good doubt. Both intellectual and lived, as long as it's within that relationship. Ask any Orthodox Jew. They know very well. That's, that, that, that's traditional there. You, uh, you make a fist. You shout as long as you do it in that context of faith and love, uh, even though you're testing both, that's good. I was sort of pleasantly intrigued by uh, your reference to an Augustinian Thomist uh, uh, tradition that's overlap of faith and reason. And um, I just wonder if you might comment on that, because I think there's sometimes a crude tendency to assume that uh, Augustine's position is, is a bit more you know, presupposing faith first and then reason, and then Thomas is sort of you know, reason first and, and then arriving for it. There's these kind of crude separations that you're either an Augustinian or a Thomist. You know? Historians love to make simplifications. Uh, everyone is either a little Platonist or a little Aristotelian. Well, Aristotle is 90% a Platonist. And Thomas never thought of himself as a Thomist. He always thought of himself as an Augustinian. 
He quotes Augustine more than anybody. Uh, both of them teach both things, that faith seeks understanding and understanding seeks faith. The emphasis is different. The, the method and attitude and, and situation and how you're coming at it is different. But, uh, but the content, the teaching, is clearly, uh, on this issue anyway, uh, not contradictory. There are issues where Aquinas contradicts Augustine's theory of sense perception, for instance, but those are technical issues. No, Aquinas is an Augustinian. Faith first and reason first. That's like saying men are superior to women and women are superior to men. They're both true. Everybody knows that. So faith has to come first, reason has to come first, both right. Well, let's take a concrete example. Let's take the famous problem of predestination and free will. Uh, in the context of faith, that is, for a Christian who believes that God has spoken and has created us with free will and predestines us, uh, these, are, these are both data. They're not hypotheses, they're data. So the hypothesis is a rational explanation of how the data fit together. Now, one role of faith then is accepting the data. A second role of faith is testing hypotheses by the whole of divine revelation, the whole rest of the data. If your notion of predestination, for instance, is a double Calvinism, where God hates the damned and sends them to hell against their will, that obviously contradicts divine revelation. And if your notion of free will is the Pelagian, where you can buy your way into heaven by a big enough merit pile, that obviously contradicts the data. So once again, it's faith that gives you the data, both the specific data and, and the whole context. But it's reason that figures out uh, how these two things can be one. How divine grace, since it treats nature as itself and not as something else, and since it it affirms and supports and perfects nature since it created it and loves it. Therefore, uh, predestination will have to uh, not only first of all set up free will in creating human nature, but also using free will uh, as the instrument by which divine predestination gets what it wants. Uh, and then reason might say, well, let's find a human analogy for that. Uh, a writer writes a story. And if the writer really loves his characters, he's not going to turn them into robots. He's going to let them be free. But it's the writer's sovereign predestination that makes those characters free. And there's not a thing that happens in a novel that isn't due to the author. But there are many things in the novel that are due to the character's free will and other things that aren't in the setting. So that's at least an analogy that's meaningful. It's not a total answer to the question, but that's reason starting with this whole context of faith, exploring uh, how much light we can get. Uh, the two mistakes are to think that we just can't get any light about it, or to think that the light can eliminate all mystery and all darkness. Like common sense, philosophy and good theology, I think, are 
taking a little bit of light and expanding it a little bit. But the more light you get, also the more questions and the more darkness you get. Life wouldn't be interesting if that weren't so. Probably the most boring building in the history of the world is the Crystal Palace, built in the London Exhibition at the end of the 19th century as a temple to science. Everything was transparent. No mystery. You could see through everything, made of glass. How boring. If I were a European Jew in approximately 1950, and I had suffered and my family was eradicated, how would you recommend that I, as a faithful Jew, or trying to be a faithful Jew, but doubting whether God existed, whether God was good, how would you recommend that I proceed to think about faith, reason, doubting God's existence, God's goodness? If you were a secular Jew or uh, something other than a practicing Orthodox Jew, I'd say go to an Orthodox Jew. If you were an Orthodox Jew, I would say you have a, a wealth in your tradition of answers to that question. It's more than any other people in the history of the world. And the answers are always Job-like. They're not easy, but they're there. There's a story, I don't know if this is apocryphal or, or true. Uh, two Jews in Auschwitz, one was uh, uh, a rabbi who was uh, very pious and said that God will deliver us. God will never uh, abandon his chosen people. We are the chosen people. Uh, we will not die. The war will end. Hitler will die. We will not go to the gas chambers. And the other was a, an atheist who had lost his faith because of such horrible things. How can God allow them to happen? Uh, both men were targeted for the gas chamber. And they knew that it was the end. Uh, and as the, uh, the rabbi entered in, he looked around. He said, God will, will help us. God will help us. And God didn't come. And just before he closed the door, he said, there is no God. It was the rabbi's last words. The atheist entered the door uh, chanting the Shema Yisrael. He took his place. There's always the option. Faith is never immune from doubt. Doubt is never immune from the possibility of faith. The door is always open. Of course, the Christian answer, and I don't know how scandalous this would be to a Jew, was that uh, the answer to the question, where was God in the Holocaust, is he was gassed. He was present in every one of the victims. Because that's the essence of the Christian story. God solves the problem of evil by enduring it. Which is certainly not a philosophical solution. Yeah. Thank you very much for your talk, Professor. I was curious about uh, your statement about Pascal's fideism. I know that's a, um, a claim that others have made, but it seems that the fragment that you brought up sort of undercuts it. So I was curious how you do see him as possibly fideistic, and you talk about that at all. I wish I knew somebody who knew Pascal much better than that, and that's exactly the question I would ask them. Pascal seems to me to be an incredibly rich thinker. So you can get out of him not quite anything that you want, but apparently opposite things, like Augustine. I mean, Luther loved him, Council of Trent loved him. Augustine might be, in fact, the bridge back to pre-Reformation unity. Uh, 
On the one hand, Pascal clearly is not an irrationalist. Uh, he has a, a respect for reason and a role for reason. On the other hand, he's certainly an anti-Cartesian and an anti-foundationalist and doesn't see faith as subordinate to reason simply or reason as subordinate to faith simply. So it's easier to say what he would disagree with than exactly what he would agree with. Well, to take your last question first, doubt can move both faith and reason forward. In fact, I'd say that doubt is necessary to move both faith and reason forward. Doubt in at least your present quality or amount of both faith and reason. Dissatisfaction, Augustine's restless heart, that kind of doubt. Secondly, Human flourishing, human perfection, human happiness uh, is not just an intellectual contemplation of or understanding of the truth. It's, it's the whole human being being fulfilled by the truth of the beatific vision, which is not just philosophy, but seeing God face to face. It's, it's more like sex than philosophy. Romeo just wa wants to stare into Juliet's face. That's, that's his heaven. A book about her wouldn't suffice. But understanding is a necessary part of that. He's got, to, he's got to penetrate into her mind. But not just as a philosopher, but as a person. And whatever your vision of ultimate happiness, the truth has to be more than your vision. Because otherwise, it's boring. Otherwise, it's, it's something that we can put limits around and, and say, I will settle inside these walls. And then there's always the, but what is, what is outside the walls? But God has no walls. There's nothing outside of him. He's infinite. And therefore, it's an eternal, dynamic learning every day, something new. What does the verse of the great hymn say? When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining is the sun. We have no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. And that song will have a, a, a new stanza all the time. When you spoke about the starting points for, for religion, philosophy, life, and science, you said that experience is the starting point for life. Mm -hmm. um, I was just thinking about development, um, especially before hitting the age of reason. Mm -hmm. They haven't divided yet. In fact, the division between the baby and the rest of the world, which physically happens at birth, doesn't register in his mind. His first word is usually mama. Well, he calls everything that interests him mama. And precocious kids 
who learn language at a very early age often can't use the word I appropriately. They say, Johnny has to go to the bathroom now instead of I have to go to the bathroom now. In other words, self-consciousness comes rather late and keeps developing. Uh, but certainly experience comes first in life. You, you pop out of the womb and you say, what's that? Uh, and that's not skepticism, it's not rationalism, it's not faith, it's not doubt, it's just experience, wow. Which of the three merges first? Um, I guess doubt. Uh, let's see, I got everything I wanted in the womb, it tasted good, now, oh, here comes mommy, that tastes good. Uh, mommy goes away, I'm hungry, mommy's not here. How can that happen? How can, how can desire and satisfaction not be identical? How can there be a gap between what I want and objective reality? That's a, that's a lived doubt. I think that comes before reason. No, I think faith comes first. I trust mommy. I trust everything, I trust the world. And then there's an experience that seems to betray my trust, pain. So I have to reconcile those two things. And maybe a kind of very primitive reason does that. Let's see, if I cry hard enough, maybe mommy will come. Gee, it didn't work that time. Let's see, what else shall I do? Maybe I'll poop in my pants. Maybe that'll make mommy come. Uh, maybe there's a subconscious reasoning there. I tell my students very often, when they ask me for, for essay topics. I, I say, I will not do that for you because the topic of an essay is a question and the essay is the answer. And questions are so very precious that I'm not going to steal that work for you. You've got to get the question out. And getting a question out is much harder than you think. Great philosophers like Socrates who get the question out in a passionate way, that changes their life, even when they don't find answers. Answers, on the other hand, are probably more plentiful than you think. Students are usually pretty cynical or skeptical or, or relativistic about, about getting answers. I say the world is full of answers. It's, it's difficult because there are too many answers, not too few. So uh, I want you to get the question out. So getting that question out, that's, that's precious. So when that first emerges uh, in the experience of pain, I think that's probably when reason first emerges in an unconscious way. But I guess they all begin together. Uh, you have faith, you have doubt, you have reason. It's like the chicken and the egg. Neither one is temporally first. In fact, you could say, you could define a chicken as one egg's very clever way of making more eggs. So it, all, it all goes together. Yes. Not only, but as in almost everything, reason is an, an ingredient. It's like light. Here's, here's a hospital. It's got a lot of ingredients in it. It's got uh, uh, money, and it's got uh, walls, and it's got doctors, and it's got instruments, uh, uh, and it's got rooms, and it's got nurses. But unless there's light, you can't cure a patient or do an operation. Uh, so nothing really can happen without the light of reason. Uh, so in order to 
have faith, you've got to understand something of, of, of what the faith means. You can't just have faith. You have faith in something. Uh, the standard model is that faith comes first, then hope, then love. That's not the only way it can go. Uh, there's two other ways it can go. All three can happen at the same time, or you can start with love. For instance, in the Brothers Karamazov, when uh, Father Zosima, the wise old guru, is about to die, and Madame Holokov, uh, who's a skeptic, comes to him and confesses that she, she's lost her faith in, in the next world, and she's terrified of death because now she believes there's only going to be flowers on her grave. Prove to me that there's a God and an immortal soul. And Father Zosima says, I can't prove it to you, but you can prove it to yourself. How? I've been to college. I know all the arguments. No, no, no. You can prove it to yourself. Not, not that way. But if you, if you really love your neighbor as if he is an immortal soul created in the image of the God who is absolute love, if you, if you practice it, you'll learn that it's true. If you, if you act as if it, it were true, that will open the eye in, in your heart and you will see that it is true. It's an experiment. So faith can arise through love. Love can produce faith. Orthopraxy can lead to orthodoxy. Or it can work the other way around. Orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. I want to love the God that I believe in. And hope always connects the two. So I don't think there's any universal schema that says first comes this, then that, then the other thing. There's many different ways it can work. I like to use the, the analogy of the flower uh, faith is the root and, and hope is the stem that makes it progress forward and, and love is the, the most beautiful fruit or, or flower uh, on the fruit. But that's not the only way of looking at it. Sometimes all three grow together. Yes? Is there any legitimate understanding of the term leap of faith then? Mm -hmm. Sure. As long as it's a leap in the light and not a leap in the dark. Yeah, it's got to be a leap. When, when you propose, you don't, say, you don't, you don't bring a battery of, of philosophers and lawyers uh, to prove that it is the rational thing to do to accept a marriage proposal. You say, leap into my arms, trust me. Yeah, there's, there's plenty of rooms for leaps. But it's not an arbitrary and irrational leap. And it's not a merely subjective leap either. It's not a, I'm bored, uh, what shall I try? Well, let me try faith. Who knows? Uh, maybe it'll poison me, but maybe it'll be my food. No, there's, there's got to be enough light to give some sort of justification for the leap, but not so much light that it's so totally justified that you're an idiot who don't make it. If, if God gave us not enough light, then all leaps of faith would be arbitrary. Uh, and someone who's even minimally skeptical and minimally demanding of, of, of data uh, wouldn't find enough. And very few people would make the leap. E even those who wanted God and who loved him, if they had no evidence, they probably wouldn't make the leap. On the other hand, if he gave too much light, then everybody would find him. It would be like the sun. Nobody doubts the sun. So there wouldn't be any love needed. You don't have to love the sun to know that the sun exists. So I think religion is like a marriage proposal. You don't just propose to a stranger. 
On the other hand, you don't propose to somebody that you know like, like a mathematical equation, so there's no doubt. You say, trust me. Enough light for lovers, not enough light for non-lovers. More questions? Good. Um, could you explain more the relationship of theology to philosophy and religion and how theology might be a branch of philosophy? Yeah. Uh, in scholastic philosophy, in Aquinas, for instance, there are, there are two different kinds of theology. Augustine doesn't make this distinction sharply, but Aquinas does. There's a purely rational theology, which is a part of philosophy. Aristotle had that. Aristotle proved by reason alone that there was one supreme God who was eternal and the first cause of everything. He didn't get to love or trinity or incarnation or anything like that by reason, but he got pretty far. Uh, secondly, there's revealed theology, which is the use of philosophical reasoning on the data of divine revelation, everything that God has revealed in salvation history uh, as taught by the church and as, as summarized in the Bible. So that's a, a, an immense piece of data. That's much, much richer than simply natural or rational theology. Augustine tends not to make many distinctions because he's so in love. He just plunges into, uh, into things. He's like, a, he's like a little kid at the, at the beach. He just jumps into the wave. Whereas Aquinas is more like a, a professional surfer who, who looks at the, at the waves for an hour before he, uh, he gets on his board. Both attitudes are, are good. Mm. And then out of that, all three sort of concomitantly spring forth. Because it seems to be grounds for all three at the same time. And, and almost eliminates the question of which comes first. That's a great answer. As soon as you said that, I said, yes, of course. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like that, that, that sudden epiphany in the movie Moonlighting, when, uh, when Olivia Dukakis asks why do middle-aged men have affairs? And, and this guy who's having an affair says, well, maybe it's because we're afraid of death. That's it, she says. <laughs> well, maybe that's so or not, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think about either death or affairs, but <laughs> what you said is like that epiphany, that's it. course. Unless you mean by compelling evidence, compelling to our will rather than to our reason, so that there's no wiggle room and no possibility of freedom. Obviously not that kind of compulsion. Nor is it enough 
purely intellectual compulsion to make it impossible for the will to say no once the will looks at the evidence. Uh, if I want to believe, let's say, that Villanova University is really a, uh, oh, a hotbed of Iranian terrorism, uh, I couldn't believe that if I talked to the people here or if I look at the evidence, but if I wanted to write a crazy novel, I could make myself believe that just for purposes of writing a crazy novel. But as soon as I looked at the real evidence, I couldn't. So there are some things that we can believe until we look at the evidence. There are some things that we can't believe once we look at the evidence. And then there are things in the middle. Now, the evidence that God has given us in conscience, in nature, uh, and if we're even aware of these historical facts in the history of the Jewish people and in Christ and in the church, if, if we're aware of that, how much evidence is there? Is it so strong that if we look honestly at the evidence, we will inevitably be compelled to believe? Not quite, not quite. But I think if we look at the evidence with a, a, a pure desire for truth and an open mind, it'll be very, very strong. There are examples of brilliant, very good people who looked at the evidence and couldn't bring themselves to believe. Camus, I think of. Uh, Camus was a wonderfully honest atheist and he, he knew the meaning of life was to be a saint. And you couldn't be a saint without God, but he couldn't bring himself to believe in God. He agonized over that. And Dr. Rue in the plague is his own alter ego because the, the good doctor believes all three things and is willing to be a martyr to save innocent human lives uh, in the plague. And yet he can't, he can't doubt any one of these three things. Camus himself met with a priest every week for the last year or two of his life, trying to bring himself to believe. And the priest apparently wasn't very good, couldn't answer his questions adequately, and uh, he never got that far. So it is possible to look with a pure, honest mind at the evidence uh, and still say, no, it's not quite enough for me. But that's very rare. The more you look, the more you'll, you'll see. Uh, so that's like, that's like the question, is it, is it possible to, to meet Mother Teresa and still think that she's a fake? Well, if you're very wicked, yeah. Is it possible, well, that brings in another dimension, the moral. Uh, is it possible to, to look at Michelle Pfeiffer and think she's ugly? Well, not really, unless you have a very weird aesthetic sensibility. <laughs> so, you know, just enough wiggle room. But what determines, what determines whether you believe or not on the human level, discounting divine grace, or putting that in brackets, what, what determines it is much more desire than intelligence. Uh, if, if, if your desire is pure, if what you desire is that which God is, namely truth, goodness, and beauty, then you will almost certainly find him. If your desire is something other than that, money, sex, and power, then maybe you won't. And probably you won't. 
Jesus solved the hermeneutical problem over which billions of tons of ink have been spilled in our age in a scandalously simple way in John's Gospel, chapter 7, verse 17, I think it is, when he said, if your will were to do the will of my Father, you would understand my teaching. And you would know that it comes from him. So most problems of discernment are rooted in the will and desire. More questions? Well, you've been human beings for at least a half hour. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you.